Ah, oh, the singing was awesome. And uh, it is so good to see all of you here this morning. Are you excited about being able to come to church without registering first? Like, what kind of thing is that? You have to register first. No, um, people have always been welcome whether they registered or not. But I just want to say thank you all so much for registering. And just the way this church family has just cooperated with all these logistical things that we've been dealing with in the, in the last year. It's been amazing. So this morning, uh, the, the title of the sermon is, Have You Seen Jesus? And this is one of those passages that is super popular. You have heard words from this passage before in your Christian life. Have you ever heard, in that you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me? Okay, yes. Some of you guys have heard that. Hopefully all of you had. That is in this passage this morning. And I love it when we run across common passages that we hear all the time. And my prayer is that as we study these passages in their context, that they will have more powerful meaning to us as we hear them here and there in our life. So this morning, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 25, verse 1 through 46. That's what we're going to be going through. And ultimately, this is a passage about salvation. It's about what it means to be a Christian and live a transformed life. And as believers, we love people the way Jesus loved us. As believers, we live like Christ. Now, one of the things about this passage is there are people who have read this passage and they've misunderstood it. And they read this and they think that salvation comes by what they do. There are people that have committed their, their lives to going into missions and going and helping the poor, and they do that not so much out of an expression of love for Christ, but because that's what they think they have to do to get into heaven. And so we're going to read this passage this morning. We're going to understand it rightly, and there are some very powerful, important things. This is a story about how we treat other people. And it's, it's actually a story about judgment. I'll th- show you some, sh- some charts to see where this lays out in eschatology and our study of end, end things. But ultimately, this is about how we treat other people, but it's, it's a story about how refl- salvation shows up in our life, how we as believers are affected by what Christ does for us, uh, living a transformed life in Christ. That's what this passage ultimately is about. Um, now, there are also many people that, uh, and I'll show you some pictures a little bit later, but um, have you guys ever heard the story about the pastor who was getting a new job at this 10,000-person church, and he dressed up like a homeless guy and sat outside his church, and nobody said anything to him? And then he came up and he was the pastor. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, That actually flows, that's a story that kind of flows out of the application and a consideration of this passage. So this morning we are going to see four really important things. And the first is this, you know, all these things come in the context of the fact that at some point every person stands before God and gives an account for their life every person. And there are multiple ways and times 
that that happens. And we're going to learn first that Jesus is coming to rule, to bless, and to judge. The second thing we're going to see in this passage is that a love for God reflects itself in a love toward other people. And we're going to see that living in rebellion against God has devastating consequences. And when you put all those things, take all those things into consideration and remember this, that after this life comes eternity. And after this life comes eternity for everyone. There is an eternity in heaven in God's presence and there is an eternity in hell, separation from God and every human being and for that matter, every angelic being, will be in one of those two locations forever. And Jesus is going to explain some things about that for us this morning. And so let's jump in there. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. And I want to put this little chart up here. And uh, this is a timeline that we looked at last week, and we looked at the second coming of Christ. Matthew chapter 24, what was going to happen, and then Jesus was going to come. And we are going to look at what happens after Jesus comes. There is a judgment, and it's called the sheep-goat judgment. And so we'll get into that, talk about what that means. Um, Now, there are actually more um, than one judgments, more than one judgment. So there's the judgment of believers. It's a judgment of reward. And that happens after the rapture. Every believer who's living when the rapture happens will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be judged for reward. There will be no judgment for sin. Uh, We're not going to, there will be no condemnation for believers. It'll be a judgment of reward. And then there's going to be the tribulation period on earth where God is fulfilling his promises and his plan with the nation of Israel. That's discussed in Romans 9 through 11, where God says that Israel has been a partial hardening has happened to the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But then eventually that all Israel will be saved. God has a plan for the Jewish people, and he is going to bring them to faith in him, and that's going to happen during the tribulation period. Now, during that tribulation period, think about this. The tribulation starts with every Christian gone from the earth. And so then God starts working, and what ends up happening is there's tons of people in churches today. And if they're living when the rapture happens, there are tons of people who show up to church, they've heard the gospel, they were raised in Sunday school, and they do not live their life to please the Lord. They are not Christians. They're religious. Some people go to church every week, good, solid, Bible-believing churches. And when the rapture happens, they're going to be left behind. And there will be many people who, when Christians disappear from the earth, they're going to realize, wow, I heard about that, I learned about that, and now it's happening. And there are going to be people who what the gospel that they've heard their whole life comes to fruition and they put their faith in Christ and they will live a seven-year period in a very difficult time on the earth. Um, God is going to send two witnesses to the earth that are going to preach the gospel. 
144,000 Jews are going to become Christians and they are going to preach the gospel. God is going to send two angels that are going to preach the gospel to the whole world. And so the gospel, the word is going to be going out there. The Antichrist and his forces are going to be ruling during that period. Christians and the Jewish nation specifically are going to be persecuted. And in that period of time, many people are actually going to come to faith in Christ. And the Bible tells us, and we looked at this last week in Matthew 24, that this time of tribulation is going to be so severe that had God not cut it short, no human would live. In fact, God shows himself to people so clearly that even those who are hard-hearted, who hate God, who rebel against God, um, don't deny his existence. In fact, their response to God is to, is to say, I, I see God's glory and I see his wrath. And instead of calling out in repentance, instead of me receiving God's grace and mercy, they actually say rocks fall on us. They pray to be crushed by rocks to be hidden from God's wrath. So there's people so hard-hearted that no matter what, they don't want to put their faith in Christ. And so it's after this period of time that Jesus comes back. And that's actually what is being described in our passage this morning is the judgment that takes place when Jesus comes back and there's going to be a group of people who have become believers during the tribulation period and there's going to be a group of people who are not believers during the tribulation period. And Jesus is going to describe this is what happens to them. So we're going to read that. And um, this is something that could be, in a sense, interesting, where we just think to ourselves, oh, wow, that, that's interesting, but if, if your theology's right and I'm raptured, I'm not going to be there, so why do I need to know this? And one of the things that I want to tell you is, as people study theology, as they study end times, there are people who say, no, there's only one judgment. And every single judgment that is described in Scripture is in some ways different and in some ways similar. And, and this is the thing that we need to understand is that, that God's judgment, his basis for judgment, these kinds of things, while they do apply to specific people in specific places, generally speaking, our relationship with God is going to be reflected in the same way. God doesn't change. The way he relates to people doesn't change. If you show up to the first judgment, the second judgment, or third judgment, they're all in some sense is going to be the same. And, and one of the things that's really important for us to understand is that in some ways we're waiting for these macro judgments where, God, where these things that are going to happen in history. But here's what I want you all to know. This is something we all need to keep in mind. Is that in a sense, every single individual faces this in their own time. Because the day you die, you stand before God you are judged, and you will either go to heaven or you will go to hell. Those are the two options, and your your, everybody's fate is sealed the moment they die. Now, when we think about um, death and all these kinds of things, I just want you guys to know that did you know that while we are waiting for this judgment to happen at some point in the future, um, and it's going to happen, but did you know that about 150,000 people die 
every single day in this world. So when we talk about this sheep-goat judgment, when we talk about standing before God and what that means and the basis of God's judgment, there are 150,000 people every single day that personally stand in that moment and that live the reality of this. In the United States, there are 7,500 people that die every single day. Remember how traumatized we were with the World Trade Center when it got bombed and it died? Oh, my goodness, 3,500 people killed every day. Uh, That was a huge tragedy. That is half the amount of people that die every single day in the United States. Um, And do you want to know what half the people that die die of? Heart disease. Um, That's the number one killer every single day. And then you could line up all the other things. So here's the thing. We're talking about a judgment coming in the future. But this is a judgment that every single one of us needs to be mindful of, needs to be motivated by. And you know what? It's very possible that somebody here could actually be in this judgment. But either way, we're all going to face this. So let's read. And let's see what Jesus says about this. This is what we'll be looking at. The judgment of believers and unbelievers. The sheep-goat judgment. I want to start by just reading this whole passage in context. And basically, it's the first few verses talk about Jesus coming back. And then there's this contrast between believers and unbelievers. And it's almost the same words. One says, you're going to be blessed. The other says, you'll be cursed. One says, you're going to be blessed because you treated people the way you treated me. You met people's needs. The other one is going to say, you didn't meet needs. And then it's going to end with a verse just saying, and everybody goes into eternity, some to judgment and some to blessing. Actually, (laughs) let me reverse that. Everybody goes into judgment. Everybody goes into eternity, some to blessing and some to judgment. That's the order. It's kind of interesting order. Let me read this. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Now here's this parallel statement, and starting in verse 34. And then the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer them and say, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So let's consider these, these verses more closely. In Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... You know, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that Jesus is glorious. He is God. He is all-powerful. You remember the transfiguration where people, where the disciples saw Jesus and they saw his glory? Jesus' glory has been veiled when he took on his humanity and lived on this earth. But Jesus is glorious. He is a powerful ruler. Uh, we remember that when Jesus was going to be crucified, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they came to arrest him. He said, who do you seek? And as soon as he said that, John tells us the entire army fell on the ground. Jesus is and always has been a glorious, powerful ruler. And yet he is the expression of of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. And he took on humanity and he allowed human beings to nail him to the cross. And we know that that was God's purpose because he loved us. But Jesus is coming back in his glory and all of his angels with him. And it says that he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is a ruler. And there is a day that everybody will give an account to Jesus. And one of the things that we find out in Scripture is that people and humanity, they see the fact that Jesus isn't here. People rebel against God. They shake their fist in God's face, and nothing happens. You ever heard somebody curse God? Have you ever seen somebody do something terrible to a Christian? I mean, I've watched Christians and somebody with a sword cut their head off because they're Christians, and then that person walked off. And it's possible to look at this life and to look at this world and, and to see people in rebellion against God, people who actually live their life with no thought of God, no desire to please God. They just do whatever they want, and they're their own God, and they just decide that there is no God. And people live their life in that way, and they misunderstand they think, oh, God's not real and he's never coming back. I mean, heck, my whole life I've been doing this. But Jesus is going to come in his glory. He will sit on his throne and he will rule. And we should never mistake God's grace, God's love, and God's patience for the fact that we will escape 
a hard-hearted rebellion against God. Like that is not something that, a mis- that is not a mistake anybody should make. Now I want to read Revelation chapter 11, the description in Revelation of this time that Jesus comes. And in Matthew, this, these verses we just read, there's, there's a more specific um, identification of what happens here. In Revelation, it's more of a description of the judgment part, of not just the blessing part. But I just want to read it. And then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has his name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in white linen, white and pure, were following him on on white horses. Those are all the angels that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 25 that come back with him. And verse verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So this is a description of Jesus returning to judge. judge. Now one of the things I want to point out here in Matthew 25, 32, Jesus comes back and it says that he separates the nations. It, it says all the nations will be gathered before him in verse 32 and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. So all the nations are gathered, but individually, people within those nations are separated to the right and to the left. Now, the sheep represent believers. Those are people who have come to know Christ. They're the ones who have been persecuted during this tribulation period. By the way, believers are currently being persecuted. In fact, Jesus promises that faithful believers will be persecuted. So certainly it'll be worse in the tribulation, but it's not fundamentally different than it is now. And then there's the goats that will be put on his left. And so the nations are gathered, but judgment is individual. It is not by family. It is not by race. It, it is an individual thing. Our judgment is based on our personal relationship with God himself. And I want you to notice something. There are only two categories. You know, when you think about our culture, we categorize people in so many different ways. There's this political party and that political party. There's this race and there's that race. By the way, uh, there are different nationalities, but there's only one race. That's the human race. And, And racism is resolved by absolutely nothing that our culture is pushing. That does not resolve racism in any way. I mean, just turn on the TV, listen to what any newscaster says, it's all wrong. Racism is resolved by one thing, and that is that when we recognize that God made Adam and Eve, and every single one of us is a person made in God's image, one person has blonde hair, one person has brown hair, one person is tall, one, one person is short, one person is of this skin color, another is of that skin color. All people came from Adam and Eve. They're all the people that God made. 
And when we understand what the Bible says about who people are and how God made people, and when we view people biblically, racism is gone. But what the world does, and their, their options for trying to solve these problems are absolutely without value. They create more problems than they solve. And Jesus just says here that one of the things you notice, there's only two categories of people, and that is the saved and the unsaved. And that's how we should view people, as saved or unsaved. And we love our brothers in Christ, and when we see people that are unsaved, we love them, we desire their salvation, we desire that they would know God and that they would be in our family. And, th- and that's how we should view people. Uh, by the way, Matthew seven fourteen to 28, remember the wide and narrow road? There's only two roads. The Bible views people as saved or unsaved. And this is something that's very critical that every person needs to have in mind. We're talking about a judgment in the future, but this is something we need to remember. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, and people scoff, but we need to remember that everybody will stand before God and give an account to him. Now, when we look at the basis of this judgment, I think that that's something that's important. There's heaven, there's hell, and everybody's going to one of those two places. But Jesus says something here in this, and he's basically just talking about the reflection of true salvation. A love for God reflects itself in a love for others. Jesus is talking about in that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. There is ultimately the powerful message of salvation, do you know God? But there's also a huge challenge in this. As believers, are we living out our life the way God commands us to? Are we living in light of who Jesus has made us to be? Do we really love Jesus? And if we love Jesus, we will love people. There is a huge challenge in this passage, not just for our eternity, but for what you're going to do tomorrow morning when you get up, when you walk outside your door, how you respond to people when you walk in the doors to church, how you treat your family members, how you treat the people in life that mistreat you. A huge challenge. Look at this. This is how Jesus describes the saved. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed, and my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I just want to point out two things, that with Jesus, and this is true in every place I can think of, blessing is mentioned first. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then it goes on to say, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're already under judgment. But whenever you look at God calling people into a relationship with him, it almost always goes blessing and then cursing. It's always, hey, come to heaven, and if you reject me, you'll be separated from me forever. God is prioritizing blessing. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. God is the one who blesses. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about the fact 
that God is a savior. Jesus is our savior, but God is a savior. Look at um, 1 Timothy 2, 3. It is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our savior. God the Father is a savior. Jesus is a savior. The Holy Spirit is a savior. God is a saving God. It's not that God the Father hates you and is angry with you and Jesus died to save you and so Jesus loves you but God's mad at you and Jesus will help you out. No, God the Father loves you. Jesus loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you. The plan of salvation was God's. Jesus was our savior that died on the cross. The Holy Spirit is this down payment and promise and the one that will preserve you and get you into heaven. God is a savior. And he desires that everybody would come to a knowledge of the truth. And then look at this. It says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Like, think about that. God's not looking going, okay, who's good enough? Who am I going to let in? Before God created the world, he had in mind people he was going to save. That was Ephesians 1, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that is so comforting to me? That before I was ever born, God chose me. God knows that I didn't deserve salvation, that I would not be good enough for salvation. He saved me anyway. There's nothing that's going to happen someday. Oh, man, what if next week I blow it? What if in two months I blow it? What if something happens and God decides he doesn't want me anymore? Oh, wait a second. God chose me before I was born. He knew everything I would ever do. I can't lose my salvation because God chose me and God saved me. And God is just, Jesus is just saying to these people, God knows you and he loved you. And before the foundation of the world, he's been preparing a place for you. Isn't that amazing and comforting? And then he says, because I was hungry, you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous are surprised. They don't go, yeah, I know. I sold my house. I gave up all my stuff, and I did all this stuff so that you'd take me to heaven. Is that how they responded? No, I know. There's all this stuff I had to do. I was trying so hard. They were just like, wait, what? When did I see you? You want to know what that is an expression of? That is an expression of the fact that when God puts a love for himself in your heart, believers love Jesus. And when you love Jesus, what did did Jesus say about the greatest commandment? This is what characterizes Christians is that they love God. And Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, that you will love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you love God, you love his people. When, when somebody shows up and they're wearing clothes you don't like. You know, I have, I have people I know that they can't stand it when people put their hats on backwards. But you know, when you're a Christian, you don't care how somebody wears their hat. You see somebody that's dressed in a way that, that is offensive to you, or maybe they play music you don't like. When you look at people and you're a Christian and you love God, you don't care how somebody wears their hat. You don't care what kind of music people listen to. You look around and you see people who are made in God's image. And because you love God, 
you love people. And you want people to know God. So these people, they weren't trying to earn their salvation. They were surprised. They were like, what? Why? Because when God's in your heart, what is in your heart comes out. Now, that is a huge accountability. I want to just ask you a question. You ever uh, bump into somebody at church that irritates you? Oh, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. And don't point at anyone either. Yeah, that guy. No. I deliberately pointed at the wall. <laughs> it was none of you guys. No, I was not pointing at you, Johnny. <laughs> We need to live out who Christ has made us to be. And sometimes as Christians, we don't actually live in light of that. Peter was transformed by Christ. But in Galatians chapter 2, Peter gets sucked up into hypocrisy. He gets, starts hanging out with the Jews and he starts rejecting Gentiles. By the way, that was racism. And, and Peter got sucked up in that. It can happen to anyone. But then Paul went to him, confronted him to his face in front of everybody. And you think Peter would hate Paul after that. But later, Paul's, Peter's writing his letter, and he talks about his beloved brother, Paul, who's writing scripture. Peter was thankful that when he stepped out of line, a, a brother that loved him addressed his sin. We appreciate that. We're thankful for that. We all fall short. And sometimes we need help and encouragement from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't always live out things perfectly, but believers are characterized by a love for others. And the king will say, and that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You know, I want to just read a couple verses and we're going to move on. Think about how your love for people actually is a reflection of salvation. It is not a cause of salvation. It is a reflection of salvation. Look at 1 John 2 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. If you hate people, you're not a Christian. 1 John 3 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not, whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4, 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We are not saved by the good things we do toward others. The way we treat people is a reflection of what God has done in our heart. Um, you guys have heard of, I told you about... Uh, uh, pastor Jeremiah Stepik. He's the guy up there. Supposedly, that's the pastor, and that's what he looked like when he was homeless. Um, can I just tell you guys, this is a, um, one of those uh, urban myths. That never happened. The pastor who was going to be the senior pastor of the 10,000-person church dressed up like a homeless person, and nobody talked to him. And then he got up on the stage, and everybody was so embarrassed by how they treated the pastor. That never happened. Um, they think that that story came from the study that they did in an educational institution with seminary students. So they did this research where they took these seminary students, and they had a test, and they were studying to be in the ministry. And then they sent them somewhere to do something, and they were in a hurry, and they stuck this person in need just to see, hey, <laughs> these people studying about the love of God, they're going to put it into practice or walk past people. So they did like this study. Now, this has become such a popular myth that there are some pastors who have really done it. 
Uh, this is this homeless pastor. That's a video of James McDonald, and he dressed up like a homeless guy, and they videotaped his church. And one of the things I think was awesome is they videotaped people's responses. And it was so encouraging to see the kids that went up and thinking he was homeless, gave him, gave him food, gave him water, invited him to church. It's amazing to see that. Were there some people who just walked by? Yes. But a ton of people reached out. Um, this next one actually, so that happened in 2018. There's another one here on the right. And you can't see that picture very well, but that's another pastor who dressed up in 2012. And watching that video was so encouraging. The lady standing there next to him is saying, please come to church. I want you to come to church. I am going to save a seat for you. Come sit by me. And there were a ton of people that gave that guy money and ministered to him and cared for him and loved him. And you want to know something? That's because that is what characterizes Christians. If a homeless person showed up in our lobby, hey, not everybody's going to treat, treat that person rightly. we got non-Christians who come here. Uh, we have people who have all kinds of issues in their life who come here. Not everybody's going to treat that person right. We get a homeless person in our lobby, for the most part, they're going to be loved and cared about and welcomed. And we would say, come have a seat. And that's because we're believers and because believers are characterized by a love for people. Those were actually, I think, encouraging. It's an encouraging story. So salvation is not caused by our works. But it is interesting that Jesus takes personally how we treat other people. Um, you know, Jesus said that to Paul, right? This is not the only time this is mentioned. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, Acts 9.4? where uh, Jesus says to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because he was persecuting Christians. And Jesus says, Paul's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Or how about way back in Proverbs, where it says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. And so the way we treat people, Jesus takes personally. Let that inform how you respond to the people that God puts in your life. Here's the third thing that we need to consider is that living in rebellion against God has devastating consequences. It has devastating consequences. Let me just read this passage again. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now here's something to notice. Heaven was created for us before the foundation of the world. Who was hell created for? You know what it doesn't say there? Um, you cursed ones, depart into hell, which I prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That is not what it says. God created hell for the devil and his angels. That was God's purpose. And we have this culture now that wants to devalue judgment, that wants to devalue God's holiness. God loves everybody, and everybody's going to heaven. And as believers, we don't major on judgment, but we certainly don't remove what God says. God's heart and desire is not that people go to hell. The Bible tells us God's desire is for everyone to be saved. But make no mistake, any person who hardens their heart in rebellion against God will spend forever in hell, separated from God, experiencing the same punishment that God intended for the devil and his angels. 
So hell's going to be full of people. Hell wasn't made for people, but it will be full of people. It's a real place. It's eternal. And every single one of us needs to make a decision about where we stand. There's a whole debate right now about whether or not hell is real and whether it's eternal. And I just want you to know, um, almost all the places that heaven and hell are mentioned, they're parallel. And hell is real and hell is eternal. And the people who want to say that people are just annihilated and wiped out are people who disconnect what they believe from what the Bible teaches. And this is something that we need to consider. Um, I think it's really important, like as we just consider the fact that people are going to be separated from God, that we evaluate our evangelism. You know, I think sometimes when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, we are hindered by all the wrong things. Uh, you, hear, you hear people, I, I don't want to mention anything about hell. I don't want to mention anything about sin. That might turn somebody off. It might offend them. I just want you to know, speaking God's truth to people is never the problem. Now, if you say to your neighbor, God loves you, come with me to church, and then you vandalize his car, that's a problem. But sharing the gospel with people is never a problem. You know, there are so many people who in their Christian life, they, they give way too much credit to their own wisdom and their own ability to say the right thing in the right way. You know what you need to think about when you're sharing the gospel? This person needs to know the truth. So many times it's like, man, I don't want to say the wrong thing in the wrong way and drive people away. I just want you to know you cannot hurt somebody by sharing the gospel. When you speak in the truth in love, you cannot hurt anybody. It reminds me of this illustration that my brother-in-law, who's a doctor, told me. I remember I was talking to him, and he was working in the ER. And he's doing CPR, and I'm like, man, when, when they bring somebody in, and you're doing CPR, and you're shocking them, and they die, do you ever feel bad? Do you ever worry? What if I do something wrong? What if I mess something up? I mean, this kid, this person's on the edge of their life. What if they die and, he, and my brother-in-law says, no, I don't care. I actually can't do anything to hurt them. They're already dead. If I do the right thing, maybe I can bring them back to life. But they're already dead. Their heart is not beating. When people give CPR, sometimes there's old people. Their hearts have stopped. And they start pumping their chest. And you want to know what happens when I took my CPR class? They said, sometimes as you do that, you're going to hear crack, crack, crack as their ribs break. And then the CPR teacher said, but don't stop pumping their heart. Yes, they're gonna have broken ribs, but maybe they'll be alive. And if you don't break their ribs, they're dead anyway, so who cares? And in our, in our evangelism and in the way that we approach the gospel, we're so afraid to call people to truth, to holiness, when we're prayerfully considering their life to say you're living your life in rebellion against God and we don't want to say things like that to people, we're afraid we'll offend them. I just want you to know you cannot go wrong when you in love share the truth. Ask yourself that question. Not did I say it right, but did I present the gospel? Or was I so gentle, trying so hard not to offend anyone that I didn't actually say anything that gave them enough information to understand the gospel so that they could come to Christ. I never called them to make a choice between themselves and worshiping God. 
I tried to present the gospel in a way that says, no, you're the, you're the master of your own life. Jesus is nice. Accept him. Instead of saying, you are in trouble. You are separated from God, but God loves you, and he's merciful, and he's gracious. As Christians, I think the biggest hindrances to sharing the gospel have nothing to do with what really gets in the way of people coming to know Christ. Look what it says here, the verses that have been up on the screen. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Yeah, there are people who think the gospel's foolish. They're spiritually dead. Um, Verse 22, for Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay, wait a second. Um, The Jews don't get what they want, and the Gentiles don't get what they want, because the gospel is not that. And yet, in Christianity, we're all sitting around going, how can I dress the gospel up in a way that everyone will like it? That was never something God asked us to do. He asked us to tell people the truth. That's it. That's what we're here to do, to tell the truth in love. And then it says, look at verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, whether or not a person becomes a Christian after you share the gospel, that has nothing to do with you. When a person comes to know Christ, it's because you faithfully share the gospel and then God works in their heart. And so all you need to worry about is am I faithfully sharing the gospel? Because if we think, oh man, I don't want to faithfully share the gospel, that will offend people. Well, God's not going to work in their heart. And so we need to figure out what's our part we need to let God work, worry about what's his part. And uh, this is really cool. Uh, an example in scripture. Uh, Paul was preaching and one who heard was a woman named Lydia. And it says this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's our job to tell the truth. It's God's job to work in the heart. So when you're sharing the gospel with people and it goes south, don't worry about it. Um, if you think that you have the magic ability to save people. You think way too much of yourself. God's word is powerful. It changes people. It's what we proclaim. We need to think highly of God's word. We need to think highly of the gospel. We need to think highly of God's ability to work in somebody's heart. And we need to lower our view of our own importance and intelligence. And especially if we think, that I'm going to come up with something better than what God came up with. God, your message is not good enough. Let me tweak it and modify it because I could come up with a better gospel than you. That is not what God has called us to do. And what we find here in this fourth point is that eternity is at stake. After this life comes eternity, and to these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so eternity is at stake. Uh, My friends, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we have some new cups for you. You can turn them upside down. We hope you can find the bread better. I hear some cheers. Um, Jesus suffered for us. It wasn't our intention to make you suffer by taking communion. But I just want you to know, as we consider the Lord's Supper,
we are not saved because of our good deeds. Look at 1 Peter 2.21. For to you this, for to you, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges rightly. We follow Jesus' example. That includes the way we treat people. But look what it goes on to say in the next verse. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. We are saved because by Jesus' wounds we have been healed. Um, And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We're not trying to be good enough. We're not trying to love people well enough to get into heaven. Jesus took care of it for us. We worship him. We trust him. Now let's look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we eat this bread, we remember that Jesus died for us. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Lord, thank you that you accomplished salvation for us. Lord, we know that there is a coming judgment. There's a coming judgment for the nations. But Lord, every single one of us will face judgment before you. And the incredible blessing is that you love people. You are a savior. You have been preparing heaven for everyone who will trust you and believe in you and put their faith in you. God, help us to be prepared for that day. Give us a heart, a sense of urgency toward people who don't know you. And Lord, if there are people here who don't know you, if there's anybody watching who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would call out to you, that they would ask you to open up their heart, that you would open up their eyes, or that you would bring them to the place of knowing you, or that you would put people in their life that can talk to them about having a relationship with you. God, we ask for your your work in their heart, that you would open their heart to believe the gospel and to trust you in what you've done. So, Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen.